This morning we're going to continue our series uh, in the life of David uh, by looking at David's friendship with Jonathan. In, in, in 1 Samuel 18 through 24, we get a glimpse into one of the most famous friendships maybe ever, certainly in the Bible. Um, Maddie just read for us in 1 Samuel 18, 1, that, that Jonathan loved David as much as he loved himself. These two men had a, a deep and profound relationship with one another. What we also learn in these chapters, kind of the same period going on in, in David's life, is that at the same time David and Jonathan were living in deep friendship, that King Saul, Jonathan's father, was envious of David and wanted him dead. We're actually going to cover the conflict between David and Saul next week. But yet, Jonathan defended and protected his friend the whole time this was going on. And so while there's, while there's enmity and, and envy between David and Saul, Jonathan was there alongside of David, defending his friend, protecting his friend, walking this out with his friend. At one point, after Jonathan protected David from his father, we read that David fell down and paid homage to his friend, that the two men kissed each other and wept together. And then David left to go hide from Saul. These two men were, were intimately bound together in a way that I think for many of us feels unfamiliar and reads a little strange. In fact, such affection has caused recent scholarship to wonder about the nature of David and Jonathan's friendship. Were they more than friends? Maybe that's your response when you read that they embraced each other and kissed each other. It's understandable, but it's a question that would have been strange to the biblical world and to almost anyone until a generation or two ago. It's a modern question that our culture imposes onto the text, and I think it illustrates for us a deep and critical issue of our day. No, I'm not referring to the sexual confusion we're living in. That's a different sermon for another day. This image of, of two men loving each other sacrificially, of two men weeping together, of two men feeling affection for one another, is radically foreign to many of us because we are living in a friendship-deprived epidemic. Loneliness is a crisis of our modern culture. Many of us have very little framework have no concept of, of intimate friendship. Over the past three decades, close friendship has plummeted. One in four Americans, 25% of Americans report that they have zero friends to confide in and discuss important matters with. This number has tripled in the last 30 years. One in three Americans over the age of 65 are socially isolated. That number goes to one in two with Americans over the age of 85. Our country is lonelier than it's ever been. 
and the effects are not great. One study which examined data from more than 300,000 people found that a lack of strong relationships increases the the risk of premature death from all causes by 50%. This is an effect on mortality risk roughly comparable to smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. Another study found that having weak social connections is as harmful to our health as being an alcoholic and twice as harmful as obesity. The Harvard Gazette posted an article from an over 80-year study that the school has been running. In 1938, scientists began to track 268 Harvard sophomores in a long-running study of their lives in hopes of discovering clues about key factors to healthy, happy lives. And they've made all kinds of discoveries from this study, but among the most important was this. Our relationships have a powerful influence on our health. Close relationships, more than money or fame, are what keep people happy, help to delay mental and physical decline, and are better a predictor of long-term lives than social class, IQ, or even genes. Here's a quote from Robert Waldinger, who has given a TED Talk from this study. He says this, When we gathered together everything we knew about the study participants at age 50, it wasn't their middle-aged cholesterol levels that predicted how, long, how they were growing Uh, going to grow old. It was how satisfied they were in their relationships. Listen to this. The people who were most satisfied in their relationships at age 50 were the healthiest at age 80. So let me sum all this up. Relationships are a key predictor to our health, which means that friendships are really, really important. And this shouldn't surprise us, right? Because friendship is God's idea. Friendship is God's idea. It's rooted in God's own nature. Scripture teaches us that God is a community of persons. That the God of the Bible is not monopersonal. He is triune. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. And theologians have this fancy word for the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. They call it perichoresis. And it's this this idea that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all orbiting around each other in this dance of divine love. That, That at the heart of reality, at the heart of who God is, is, is an outpouring of selfless love. At the heart of reality is relationship. And so as those made in God's image... What I want you to hear this morning is that you were made for the dance of relationship. That within each of us, there is an innate need for friendship. It's amazing that as we read about the creation of the world in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, there's this refrain over and over. God did this, and it was so, and it was good. God created And it was so, and it was good. It's this rhythmic pattern in Genesis 1 over and over and over. And all of a sudden there's this break in the rhythm. There's this break in the pattern. It says that there was one thing that was not good. 
And it was that the man was alone. Now let's bear in mind that this is before the fall. This is before sin entered into the picture. The the need for friendship is not some deficiency that surfaces as a result of life in a fallen world. The, The need for friendship arrives in an untainted paradise. Even the Garden of Eden was not enough without friendship. And it's not as if God forgot to give Adam a friend, right? He's doing this to signal something to us. He's doing this intentionally as a statement about himself and to draw us into that reality that we need friendship because God is friendship. Adam needed a friend. Pastor Tim Keller says, Adam was not lonely because he was imperfect but because he was perfect. Adam was not lonely because he was imperfect, but because he was perfect. In other words, to be lonely is not an imperfection. It's a reflection of God's image. It's a reflection of the reality that we were made for relationship. Adam's ache for relationship is rooted in his likeness to God. We weren't made to manage life alone. And we see this vividly in the life of David. His friendship with Jonathan carried him through this dark season of life. And so this morning, I want to look at the dynamics of their relationship. And I want us to trace out three traits of their friendship. I think these are really essential components of true friendship. We're going to see that David and Jonathan had a friendship constituted by steadfastness, vulnerability, and sacrifice. This is really the essence of of real friendship. Friendship is marked by steadfastness, vulnerability, and sacrifice. Songwriter Andrew Peterson pictures marriage as dancing in a minefield. I'd say that's pretty accurate. He sings this. He says, it was harder than we dreamed. But I believe that's what the promise is for. What what Peterson is saying is that we don't make covenant vows for easy times. Right? The reason why we stand before witnesses and make vows before God, like for richer or poorer, or in sickness and in health, is because at some point poverty and sickness show up. We make covenants because life is a minefield. And covenants aren't just for the marriage relationship. They're true of all real friendships, whether formalized or not. Abiding friendships are marked by a gritty stick to And a promise of faithfulness. We read in 1 Samuel 18 that that Jonathan was bound to David in close friendship. That he loved him as much as he loved himself. Verse 3 says that Jonathan actually formalized a covenant with David. He, He devoted himself to his friend. And almost immediately after this, David's life becomes a minefield. King Saul becomes envious, so much so that he wants David killed. 
And while David is in service to the king, the king in a moment of rage grabs a spear and hurls it at David's head. And David is forced to to go into hiding. And this, this pattern actually happens more than once. And it's as David is hiding from Saul that his friend Jonathan comes to him in the, in the wilderness of Ziph to encourage David in his faith. And we read that, that Jonathan said to David, David, don't be afraid. For my father Saul will never lay a hand on you. You yourself will be king over Israel and I'll be your second in command. Even my father Saul knows this is true. And then it says the two reaffirmed their covenant to one another. Friends, this this is what friendship is all about. Jonathan is present in the critical moment with words of comfort and assurance. Diedrich Bonhoeffer in his great little book, Life Together, writes this. He says, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. He needs his brother as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. You hear what Bonhoeffer's saying? He's saying that there are these moments in our lives where our own faith is weak, when we are discouraged, when we are downtrodden, when we're having a hard time believing the gospel is true. And in those moments, it's the word of the gospel on a sister's mouth. It's the word of the gospel on a brother's lips that actually enlivens our faith and breathes life into us and carries us through in that moment. Here is David, uncertain and scared. His faith is wavering. And here comes Jonathan to gospel him with words of assurance. Eugene Peterson points out that David's friendship with David actually brackets the evil of Saul in David's life. That Jonathan is there at the beginning and Jonathan is there at the end. The whole time David is dealing with with Saul's jealous anger, In Saul's pursuit of his life, Jonathan is present to encourage and defend. We could argue that the only reason David survived Saul was because of Jonathan. Jonathan was a buffer to the evil. That's what friends do. They hold back the evil. They hold our hands through the hard times. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Don't we need friends like that? Someone to stand with us through hardship, to, to reassure us of who we are, and to gospel us in our weakness. And we notice that the only way that Jonathan could love David in this moment of weakness was because David opened himself up To Jonathan. This is the second aspect I want us to notice of real friendship. Friends are not only steadfast, friends are vulnerable with one another. In verse 1 of of chapter 18, it says that Jonathan was bound to David 
in close friendship. The ESV puts it this way. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. That word knit or bound is the Hebrew word kashar. And and it means to, to tie together. The picture here is that Jonathan and David's souls were entangled. It's this very poetic language. But in reality, what it means is that the two men couldn't hide from one another. They were so close. They knew each other so well that they were open to one another. But there was nothing held back between the two men. In a world where everyone is projecting the best version of themselves on Instagram, pretending to have it all together and to be A-OK, is there anyone in your life who has access to what's underneath the surface? Who has access to your inner soul? Who knows the real you? Who have you let in? It's been said before that to be known and not loved is terrifying. But to be loved and not known is mere sentimentality. See, we're often afraid to let people in because we think, well, if they knew the real me, they'd run away. They'd judge. They'd expose me. Right? Isn't that why we're scared to go deep with people? Because the fear is, if if I was truly known, I couldn't be loved. Because they'd see all the mess that is me. And so instead, what we do is we opt for a way of living with others that's sentimental. That's shallow. It's trite. We do supper clubs, we watch the game together, but no one truly knows us. And what David and Jonathan are signaling to us is that there is a third way. There is a way to truly be known and yet still be deeply loved. To risk vulnerability and to be met with warmth. I was recently listening to a conversation between the actor Shia LaBeouf, and Bishop Robert Barron. And and in this interview, Shia shared about his recent conversion to the Christian faith. His life before he found the Lord, or maybe it's better said, before the Lord found him, his life was in shambles. He testified that he was arrested 11 times. He was accused of beating or abusing his girlfriend. In fact, she admits, and I'm sorry, Shia admits in this interview that he mistreated every person he was ever with. He was struggling with addiction, and he admits that he was contemplating suicide. And, and so he checked into this rehab facility, and at this facility, they were allowed visitors once a week. Family or close friends could visit once a week. And and for the first several weeks, no one showed up. His parents, at this point, didn't want anything to do with him. And so while everyone else had a family member visiting, Shia said no one came to see him. Then he said one week, out of nowhere, his ex-wife showed up. He says, she was present for me 
when I didn't deserve to have anyone in my life, especially her. He says, she saved my life. And he goes on and he says, it was the first time I really understood love because I didn't have anything to give. See, friends, true friends, love you because they love you. Not because you have something to offer. A friend knows the worst of you and still shows up. And David knew his life was safe with Jonathan because not only had Jonathan been steadfast in David's life, not only did Jonathan show up, but Jonathan sacrificed. David knew he could trust Jonathan because Jonathan had laid down his life for David. In in, in verse 4 of of Samuel 18, it tells us that after committing himself to David, Jonathan removed his robe that he was wearing and he gave it to David along with his military tunic and his sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan's robe and his tunic were status symbols. They were equivalent to his crown. They demarcated his rank in the army. Jonathan was Saul's son. He was a prince. And he was the natural heir to the throne of his father. But with these actions, what what Jonathan is saying to David is, I believe you're God's anointed, and I give away my throne for you. See, Jonathan gave up the crown because he believed in David's calling. And so he sacrificed self-interest to serve his friend. That's the third aspect we see here of friendship. We live in a world where we are inundated with the message to look out for number one. We're gospeled by consumerism, which tells us to take care of ourselves and to protect our self-interests. But here in Jonathan, we find something much more beautiful. Jonathan yielded his rights for the good of his friend. I wonder, does that remind you of anyone else? The traits that we see here in Jonathan are fully personified in Jesus. Philippians 2 invites us to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant and taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus emptied himself so that he could serve us. He He became vulnerable. The Son of God put on mortal flesh and identified with us in our weakness. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He identified with us in our vulnerability. Jesus became crucifiable. He opened himself up to the world so that he could serve it. And he relinquished the warmth of heaven so that he could share it with us. Jesus abdicated his throne so that we could become his co-heirs. 
Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. And in Jesus, we are freed to admit that we are more sinful than we ever dared believe, yet more accepted and loved than we ever dared hope. Jesus is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he has said somewhere, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus is steadfast and committed to your good. He's a friend. And see, it's this kind of security, it's this kind of love that enables us to actually risk vulnerability and to make sacrifices for others. Where do we find the strength to be real friends? Only in Jesus. Only in Jesus. To to be a true friend, the kind of friend that we see here, you need to experience the transformative friendship of Jesus. You must know that you are accepted and loved and secure in him. But see, as you experience that, when you experience the security and the love of Jesus, it actually calls you to begin to be a friend to others. To open yourself up. To sacrifice. To be committed. Let's be honest Friendship is risky business. It's costly. Some of us have been burned by it. And so we've decided that from now on we're going to hedge our bets. No more vulnerability. No more sacrifice. It just feels too unsafe. But friends, listen, it's the way of Christ. 1 John 4.10, love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, you hear what language God uses? Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is made complete in us. Friendship is how we display the love of Jesus to the world. Henry Nouwen says it this way. He says, In our world full of strangers, estranged from their own past, culture and country, from their neighbors, friends, and family, from their deepest self and their God, we witness a painful search for a hospitable place where life can be lived without fear, and where community can be found. That is our vocation as Christians. To convert the enemy into the guest and to create the free and fearless space where brotherhood and sisterhood can be formed and fully experienced. 
Let's pray together. What a friend we have in Jesus. Jesus, we marvel this morning that you risked vulnerability to make us your friends. That Romans 5, 8 says, while we were still enemies, while we were still in our sin, while there was still enmity between us and the Father, Jesus, you died for us to make us your friends. Thank you for loving us at our worst. That we are truly and fully known and yet deeply loved. Let that do something in us. May that transform us. So much so that we would be a friend to others that we would begin to live lives of sacrifice and vulnerability and committedness, not predicated upon someone's earning that or deserving that, but because you loved us and so we love one another. And God, as we live lives of love, as we fulfill this call to friendship, we pray that we would display your grace and your kindness and your love to the world. Would they see it in us, God? Help us. Help us, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A sermon like this one, it could be triggering for those of you who have perhaps felt the pain of losing a friend, either from death or from a fallout. If that's you, I just want to invite you this morning, if you find yourself in a place of grief and hurt from a lost friend, to consider sharing that with someone who feels safe. It, it, it's important for us to work through our grief and to seek healing because God has more for us. We need friends for the journey. There is someone who needs you to be their friend. And so let's not settle for lives of sentimentality. Let's not acquiesce into consumeristic relationships. Let's let Jesus heal us. Let's let the gospel drive us deep into the kind of friendships we were made for. Church, Jesus is inviting us to be a beloved community. He's inviting us to bear one another's burdens and to go deep in relationship with one another. There should, be, there should be no safer place than among the people of God. There should be no such thing as a lonely Christian. He's given us the church to journey through life with. And so the question this morning is, what does it look like for us to live into that reality? you as an individual, with your friends, our city groups, what does it look like for us to push past sentimentality and consumerism into that covenant love of friendship with one another? 
If you're lonely this morning, I want you to know this. Jesus wants to be your friend. Find comfort in the invitation of his friendship. And know this also. There are people here willing to enter friendship with you. I want to encourage you and invite you to take a step into community by faith and trust that God will provide friendship for you. Finally, if you've been sitting here during this message and there is someone coming to your mind that is a Jonathan to you, somebody that's loved you, has been steadfast and sacrificial and vulnerable, I want to encourage you to thank God for them and consider reaching out to them this week to express your gratitude for them. True friendship is a gift that we shouldn't take lightly. Let's not take it for granted. Maybe even today you need to reach out to someone and just go, man, you are a gift from God and I thank him for you. However you need to respond to this message, I want to encourage you to respond as the Spirit leads and we'll sing of his faithfulness together. Let's sing.